Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we're continuing our story of California and the Civil War. Later this week, we'll have an interview for you with the hosts of the amazing podcast program, Water Talk, that will be posted Friday morning. Let's get started with today's episode. One of the instrumental forces pushing Confederate expansion in the Southwest was a general named Henry Hopkins Sibley. Sibley came from a family of revolutionaries in Massachusetts, his father serving as a medic in the American Revolutionary War. Later, his physician father would strike out south and then west into the Red River County of Louisiana. After his father's death, Sibley was sent to live with a family member in Missouri. At the age of 17, he enrolled at West Point before participating in conflicts with indigenous people in the Seminole War in Florida, and then followed by participation in the Mexican-American War. Afterwards, he did a variety of things with the military, including patrolling edges of Texas, likely dealing with the Comanche among with other native groups, as well as various military expeditions. He's also famous for inventing the Sibley tent, something that was patented and used by the military for a long time. It kind of resembles what comes to your mind when you hear the word teepee. In addition, as the prolific inventor that he turned out to be, he also invented a tent stove that he again named after himself. The stove resembles the tent in many ways, with a conical shape with a small door at the front. These stoves continued to be used for almost a hundred years until nearly the beginning of World War II. While he was busy inventing things, he also witnessed many of the major conflicts preceding the Civil War. He served in Kansas during its bleeding phase, as well as during the conflict in Utah. When the Civil War began, Sibley's native allegiance to his home of Louisiana led him to resign from the U.S. military and join with the Confederates. At the outbreak of the war, Sibley traveled to Richmond to convince Jefferson Davis to expand Confederate operations to the Southwest, something that would have required little to no persuasion strategically, but tactically required much, with the resource superior Northern Army having a lot more source resources and troops to delegate to different tasks, Davis, on the other hand, needed to be judicious with how he allocated his resources. Accordingly, Sibley contended that the campaign could be profitable as the Southern Army supporting the Southwesterns would gladly supply them with arms, ammo, and food. Davis gave his approval and sent Sibley back to the Southwest to raise an army and begin his campaign. Like in any complicated military situation where communication was slow and full of gaps, Sibley ran into major problems. The primary among those being that many of his troops he intended to use for his campaign were being pulled into the main theater of war in the East. Convinced by the necessity of his mission, Sibley proceeded even though he was undermanned and under-resourced, something that would be an issue for Southern military leaders and which some would overcome through brilliant tactical and strategic maneuvers, something that would not necessarily translate into this more sparse and stark theater of war. 
Even though Sibley faced these deprivations, his force of 3,200 men was still a powerful contingent of the military in New Mexico and had the power to cause havoc for the Union. His main adversary was the federal general named Edward Canby, who had a number of run-ins with Sibley before their eventual military showdown in a pass in New Mexico called Glorietta. Canby had presided on a panel of judges that adjudicated Sibley for actions that he had taken during the Utah War. Additionally, both Sibley and Canby were involved in conflicts with the Navajo in New Mexico. There are a number of skirmishes that happened during Sibley's invasion of the New Mexico area. There was a belief that many of the Union soldiers would not put up much of a fight given their history with the federal government in this part of the United States and that many had hailed originally from the southern half of the United States. Nonetheless, violent conflict ensued with Confederates often having the upper hand. They won an unexpected victory along the Rio Grande in February of 1862, which caused Canby to retreat with his men while the Confederates invaded further into Mexico, taking Albuquerque and followed by Santa Fe. While the Confederates pushed, Canby employed the age-old military tactic of destroying resources to test the supply chains of their opponents. Facing a resource emergency because of this action, Sibley raced to a federal supply hub at Fort Union, which led him through the Gloriata Pass, somewhere I visited to camp as a child. It's a beautiful and narrow high desert pass that I had no idea was home to a decisive Civil War battle. Sibley had no idea that a contingent of volunteers, a tough group of miners from Colorado, had recently arrived in the Southwest after trudging through elements of blizzard and vast deserts to meet their Confederate adversaries. The battle lasted two days. While the conflict was fairly evenly divided in terms of casualties, the decisive moment was when Sibley's supply was discovered in a flanking movement by Union forces. Having his supply chain destroyed, Sibley saw the writing on the wall that they would eventually be surrounded and stranded without supplies, even if they won the battle. And so to avoid total catastrophe, he decided to retreat. Canby, who was tasked with weakening the Confederate army as much as humanly possible, pursued them through the desert while also keeping enough distance between the forces to avoid actual conflict. In this way, Canby was both conserving resources and trusting what he understood about the desert, which is that it can be as merciless as a cannon with enough killing power in its darth of water and nourishment to finish the job that would undoubtedly, under normal military conflict, lead to high casualties. This was not the only military activity going on in the region. While the battle between these larger forces was taking place, Sibley also had to worry about the growing issue of chaos in the region that native groups in the area were primed and ready to take full advantage of. Native Americans in the United States have long benefited when chaos or inter-European conflict emerged, particularly in the early days of the European invasion and exploration of North America. Often, conflict between the Spanish, English, and French was used to Native Americans' advantage. The situation in the Southwest was similar. With the focus of Americans moving towards regional conflict, the Navajo were able to take both vengeance, land, and advantage, 
killing and evicting miners and ranchers from their land. Essentially, the Confederacy was interviewing for the rule of sovereign authority for people in the Southwest, who needed to trust that the military and the government would protect them from native violence, something that the Union-supported federal government had not done well, which ultimately led them to initially, and I say initially here, sympathize with the Confederate cause. However, early on, the Confederate cause faced a major setback with the capital Tucson facing native incursion. Sibley entrusted this mission of protecting the capital of New Mexico to Captain Sherrod Hunter. Hunter was someone who experienced both tragedy in his life and the threat of native violence, having been personally driven from his land by Apache warriors. Hunter's role vis-a-vis the native threat was to act as a form of deterrence because his force was far too small to organize any concerted root-and-branch military campaign against the much larger and more adept native opposition. His other task was related to the growing Union force at Fort Yuma, California, along the border of California. Primary among Hunter's tasks were destroying supplies and hunting down enemies. He and his men moved quickly to burn hay supplies to limit the mobility of troops and began arresting potential Union sympathizers. There was one actual battle during this campaign near the Gila River that resulted in one casualty. This skirmish, a term that might be generous given the size of the conflict, is famous for being the westernmost battle that took place during the Civil War. These maneuvers by Hunter to solidify Confederate positions and weaken the enemy were great stalling tactics and caused some delays to the colonel in charge at Fort Yuma, James Carleton. An experienced fighter and veteran of the Mexican-American War, Carleton did much preparation for the coming conflict with the South by organizing loyal troops and building training camps in the Los Angeles area. And upon hearing about the movements and plans of Sibley and his Confederate soldiers, Carleton began to move into the area around Fort Yuma. Carleton not only wanted to protect California, he also wanted to go on the offensive so as not to allow the enemy to build fortifications and troops near the border with California. The challenge, obviously, with any major offensive into Arizona and the Southwest more broadly, was the reality of these environmental conditions. Food and water, not only for the men but for the livestock as well, would need to be transported. Oftentimes in military history tomes that I have combed through over the years, the importance of supply chains and military leaders in charge of logistics are relegated to footnotes or brief asides. In fact, supply chain issues are often the deciding factors in battles and wars. One of the best books that I've read that really gives supply factors its due, admittedly in somewhat excruciating, and I mean excruciating detail, is Victor Davis Hansen's massive and thorough The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. It essentially makes the case that the economy and the amazing supply chains that the U.S. wielded decided the war. We often want to believe that it's heroic generals that decide conflicts and not spreadsheets and their accompanying bean counters. We live in a world of Marvel superheroes. We like the idea of winning against the odds, being the underdog, etc. Again, again, though, we return to this simple idea that it's the economy, stupid. 
Resource allocation, along with geography, are the silent elephants in the room that often dictate outcomes in military conflict. While we are all focused on loud guns, the flashes of light, and the cacophony of cannons drawing our attention, the focus should be on the purr of gears of production and the braying of donkeys as they move supply chains of food and water across landscapes. For me, this is the biggest challenge with military history that I read. I understand that it is written in, why it's written in this way. It conforms to the public perception of what matters in war. I will admit, when I was reading through some of the statistics listed in Victor Davis Hanson's book, my mind often wandered and my eyes occasionally closed in exhaustion of these tedious details. Even though it seems boring, this is often where answers are found. Answers are often boring. They are often tedious. They are often mundane. They are not riveting tales of superheroes and corresponding supervillains. They are tales of numbers. This is a brief aside that I felt was important to discuss as we continue to discuss military campaigns. And I just wanted to highlight an underreported aspect of military conflict. Returning to our story, after Carlton had the opportunity to get all of this logistics set up and water replenishing stations posted along the journey, he was finally ready to move into the desert. Now this was taking place obviously before any forms of modern communication technology. So no message about the Battle of Glorietta Pass was sent or reached Carlton in time to either halt or delay his progress into the desert. In addition, the conflicts and the harassment of messengers and scouts by indigenous resistance in the desert also made it nearly impossible to get messages across. Even though the brunt of the forces had retreated to Texas, Hunter's troops were still engaging in military maneuvers near the Tucson area. And that's where we'll leave off on our story for today. We'll see you next time.